So Batman and his world come with a set of rules. And those rules can or cannot be encapsulated into a Bible. And the Bible will tell the rules of Batman, the character, his supporting characters, and the world of Batman. So you have to make sure that those rules are maintained. You are now listening to Beyond the Fourth Wall of Writing with your host, John Robinson IV. Here we smash walls, demolish writer's blocks, and learn how to harness the true power of storytelling. Let's get it cracking. Joseph P. Illich is a professional comic book writer, editor, and enthusiast who started his career working at Milestone Comics. He later went on to executively edit for DC Comics and Valiant Comics. He is also the architect of the new diverse superhero universe under Lionforge, known as Catalyst Prime, and is the co-founder of Verge Entertainment. He is currently the editorial director of A Way Blue World. Joe is always on the lookout for new ventures, and he champions diversity in everything that he does. Hey, what's going on, everyone? This is John Robinson IV, back with another episode of Beyond the Fourth Wall podcast. With me now is Mr. Joseph P. Elledge, the man himself. What's going on? Hey, how are you today, John? Doing pretty good, pretty good. I'm, I'm super, I'm super happy to be able to talk to you. Uh, <laughs> uh, like we were saying, kind of before uh, we got onto the uh, recording, uh, we've been, me and Joe have been trying to link up for well, has has that been over a year, maybe even two? You know? <laughs> yeah, I feel like possibly two years we've been trying to do it, and we just kept missing each other like ships in the night. But I'm glad we we're able to kick 2020 off by actually coming together and getting into it so thanks for inviting me on your show absolutely absolutely you know this is also one of the this is actually one of the more positive aspects of social media you know uh <laughs> we know social media could do a lot you know but one of the best this is things, true <laughs> one of the best things is being able to uh you know meet people um link up with people and and, and learn from them you know joe has to be one of the most positive voices on social media in general. Um, I see you mainly on Twitter. I think I have you on Facebook also, but mainly on, on Twitter. Uh, like you're kind of like the, the shining light in all of the, the mucky, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, you're very kind. You know, that is something that I'm very intentional with social media. There's really so much bad news. Right. So many bad things that I think sometimes we need some reminders mm-hmm. that there's good. And so. I try to, you know, really be positive, um, really be respectful to other people on social media and spread good news. And even if there are disagreements, if we can maintain respect for one another's opinions, that's great. If I see a situation where someone is trying to goad me into a thermonuclear discussion, <laughs> I just don't take the bait because there's just better things to do with time than argue with people about the Snyder Cut of Justice League. <laughs> it really is. That's a whole road, you know? man. <laughs> exactly. like, uh, there, there's, there's good to be done. Absolutely. Right? So let's, Let's just do the good work. Right, right, right. I mean, honestly, like, and you also drop like great tidbits. Um, I mean, I see some of the best comic related articles, you know, from your Twitter feed. I'm just like, oh, wow. I didn't, 
I didn't figure out what blogs he's following to see that. Like, that was good. All right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, the regular sites, there's four sites that I look at regularly. It's um, ICV2.com, which is really um, the comics industry from a business perspective. Mm-hmm. It's Comics Beat, which is one of the longest standing comic book websites. It's Newsarama. Right. And it's yeah. being cool. Those are really the four that I look at on a regular basis. Um, there's a lot of well-written pieces coming from Comicosity. Mm-hmm. And I subscribe to panel by panel. Oh, but yes. again, you know, there are so many good journalists out there, good columnists, critics, that it's good to spread the word. Right. It's good to spread the good messaging, the good exploration of stories of our community. And because we are a community, we're all interconnected. So, you know, let's help elevate one another. Let's help increase awareness of one another's work. Absolutely. And, and, and just to go off what you said about panel X panel or panel by panel, I call it panel X panel. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) But uh, that it has to be one of the best, if not best, uh, is introspective the word I want to use? Uh, yeah, I'd say so. I mean, they really really do some deep dives with their stories and they basically take an entire issue and they focus it around a theme, whether it's a particular genre in comics, whether it's a particular comic book series, they really did an in-depth exploration of um, Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips criminal. Mm-hmm. And a few issues ago, they did a profile on, I think it was Elsa Charitier's work. So they really go into it. And that's kind of, you know, more of the work that we need in the comics book industry. The industry and its stories are just as powerful and valid as any other storytelling right. medium. So. The type of journalism and the type of think pieces that we need should speak to that level of sophistication. So, Absolutely. you know, we're really fortunate that so many people are giving of themselves to write about this industry in comprehensive ways. Absolutely, man. That's like, I mean, that stuff is like your, those like your, your complex carbs and, and whatnot, you know, <laughs> when it comes to. That's it, that's it. And you're a part of that. You've been writing, you know, pieces for years when I was. Over at Lion Forge as the senior editor, um, basically running the Catalyst Prime line, you did a number of pieces on that, and a lot of people did. And so, you know, thank you for your work. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I, lo- I love that world. Like uh, Catalyst Prime was amazing. Um, but yeah, yeah. So, so b- before we before we get into the uh, the technical stuff, you know, talking about editing and. and what editing really entails, what that means from a, you know, from a writing perspective and a, and a project perspective. Uh, we, we gotta hear a little bit, just, just, just a brief, you know, t- tell us about how you guys started. We, we gotta, I, I want to hear about those, those, those early milestone, uh, milestone days with the, with the late great, the late great Dwayne McDuffie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So milestone. So the way I got started was, so there was a distributor, <clears throat> I think their name was Capital, and the way that Diamond puts out previews every month for the comic book buyers and the retailers 
Capital had a similar catalog called Advanced Comics. Mm. And when Milestone launched, they had interviews in both. They had interviews in previews, and they had interviews in Advanced Comics. But the Advanced Comics one spoke about their internship program, and it said if you were interested in joining our intern team and becoming a part of Milestone, here's a phone number that you can call. You ask for Michael Davis, I think it pointed out, and you can get an interview. So a friend of mine named Jason Scott Jones, who became the color director over there right. and is now a producer in television, mm-hmm. he joined their internship department and he told me about it. And at the time, I didn't want to do it because it meant working for free because if you're talking about the 90s, mm-hmm. you're basically talking unpaid internships. Right. And I was not interested in working for free. And so I just decided I wasn't interested in it. And then I got to a point where I was in between jobs and I visited a newsstand on the corner of Church Avenue and Utica Avenue in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. which is where I was born and where I live now. And Icon number two was on the stands. And it had a cover with Icon and Rocket fighting these cops in SWAT gear. And it had a line, a tagline that was a take on Dr. Seuss. And it said, stop, do not hop on cop. <laughs> and I never saw a comic book like that. Right. And it really struck me. And that was a moment for me. That was a moment in which I realized that history was going to be made by this company. Mm-hmm. And I decided that I wanted to be a part of it. Right. And so I found that magazine again, saw the phone number, made the call, went in for an interview. I was interviewed by Dwayne McDuffie and Matt Wayne. Matt was an editor there. Oh, yeah. And I thought I did a great job on an interview, but I actually blew it. <laughs> I blew it. I had a chip on my shoulder because I've been reading comics since I was in second grade. And I walked in there like I was an expert. Right. And so I wasn't going to get it. And Jason ended up sticking up for me with Dwayne and Matt. And he said, no, you know, give him a shot. Mm-hmm. Right. So they did give me a shot. And I interned at Milestone for three months and learned a lot working under Dwayne, Derek Dingle, who was the president of Milestone, mm-hmm. uh, Dennis Cowan, one of the co-founders and art director, and Michael Davis, who was one of the founders and dealt with business development. Right. And after three months, I, you know, let Derek know that I was really enjoying my time there at Milestone, but I had to leave because I had to make some money. I had to go out into the world and get a job. Mm-hmm. And so I went to lunch and I came back from lunch and they offered me a part-time job. Oh, wow. Oh, that's huge. <laughs> and that, that was the beginning. That was the beginning of my career in comics. And Milestone showed me that comics could be a career. Right. That it was more than just a hobby and that black people had a place. Right. Exactly. A firm in the future of comic books. I mean, yeah, seeing, seeing a, um, I mean, the stop, stop, don't hop on cop, like that has to be profound, especially back then when, 
you know, we haven't, you know, especially not to, to the extent that we do now, haven't seen black people to that extent in comics. You know, I mean, of course, some existed and there was, you know, um, Black Panther, Luke Cage, etc. But, you sure, know, but we were, you know, our presence, our presence in comics, superhero comics in America was truly marginal. Right. In the 90s. Right. So Milestone was basically the first universe of superheroes of that size and scale mm-hmm. in which saw people of color, in which you saw queer characters, in which you saw disabled characters. Right. Basically, Milestone helped pave the way for those representations 27 years ago. Wow. We are almost at the 27-year anniversary of the launch because Milestone launched, I believe, February 28th mm. of 1993. Wow. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. That's... So a lot of things that are happening in comics now that are blowing people's minds, Milestone did that. Right. Last century. <laughs> yeah, literally. Think about, yeah. And when you think about the impression that a character like Static Mm-hmm. Who would later be called Static Shock? Right. Made in this world that that character was a juncture point. Right. For people to see themselves as heroes the same way like Miles Morales or Kamala Khan, mm-hmm. that the, uh, Cassandra Kane, you know, the same way that those characters represented that for people. That's what Static was. That's what Milestone was Absolutely. for an entire generation of people. Yes. I mean, Static was a huge impact on me, man. Like, uh, I, I just had never seen, like, a character not, it wasn't just because he was black. It's like he was, he was written in a way that I could really relate with. I mean, high school kid, kind of, kind of goofy, you know, Chasing girls a little bit, trying to figure out how to do the right thing, you know, going through real teen problems, you know? Yeah. Virgil Hawkins was real. And another thing is that Virgil Hawkins was an intellectual. He was a high intellect character Mm -hmm. at a time when we were told that as young people, intellect was a negative. Right. Yeah. That displaying your intellect meant that you were talking like white people, that you were acting like white people. And (laughs) Virgil Hawkins went out into the world every day being who he was. Exactly. Yeah. And he taught us a core lesson that you don't have to try to be cool. Just be you. Mm -hmm. And if that's not good enough for people, then those people aren't your friends and you don't need them in your life. Right, right. The people who accept you um, or the people who know you, put it that way, mm-hmm. um, who recognize what is special and good about you and want to care for you and want to help you be a better person, mm-hmm. those are the people who you want in your orbit. Um, and so Virgil Hawkins was representative of that. And so the impression that he has made in pop culture uh, is really amazing. Right, right. Absolutely. I I haven't felt about a character like I did about Virgil Hawkins until Miles and specifically Miles 
in this movie because I read Miles ever since he showed up and you know 2011 I think it was and I liked it I mean I loved it you know but it's still I still didn't get that same feeling I didn't even know I was looking for it either but but as soon as I watched Into the Spider-Verse it came back to me like that feeling like of reading Static the first time that was the first like (laughs) it's crazy (laughs) Into the Spider-Verse is a special film um I I think I almost broke into tears in the moment where he hugs his dad. Oh yeah. Right? And yeah. he's he's hugging his dad as Spider-Man, but he's also hugging him as his son. Right. 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 And also that the writers wrote a really sophisticated story that was not a white savior story. Mm-hmm. Peter Parker was not the Obi-Wan to Miles exclusively. Mm-hmm. Peter Parker taught Miles how to be Spider-Man and Miles taught Parker how to face his life. Right. Yeah. Right. And basically say, I know things have taken a downturn for you, but back home, there's a woman who loves you mm-hmm. and you may have a pot belly and it may be harder to swing, but <laughs> Go back there and live. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And he, and he made you know, him so go back. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then he faced this, uh, so Kingpin alone. That's what I'm saying. You had this Afro-Latino kid teaching Spider-Man about life. Right. And that's profound. Right. And so that's part of what made that special. And also the idea that anyone could be a hero. That mm-hmm. the the role of the Spider-Hero goes beyond race, goes beyond age, goes beyond character descriptions. It symbolized the capacity for heroic sacrifice, mm-hmm. that with great power comes great responsibility. And if you live that to your core, then you are a spider hero. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that you know? that line at the end got me, too. <laughs> uh, when, he, when, he, when he essentially says that, you know, you, you could wear the mask, I could wear the mask, or something to that effect. Um, yeah. Basically. <laughs> that was, yeah, it was, that was some powerful stuff, man. Like, I, like, honestly, those are the, those are the two most probably impactful characters, even, even as, even as, uh, young in his, in his, uh, legacy as Miles is probably the two most impactful characters for me in comics. Um, I get it. I get it. Yeah. It's, well, these are what these, these hero stories do for us. Right. 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 Um, and that's why they're special. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, okay. Let's, let's get into a little bit of the, uh, the technical talk. (laughs) Uh, I know I could talk about miles all day, so I got to catch myself. (laughs) Uh, Miles, Virgil, whoever. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so editing, I, I kind of see editing, is um, I, I learn more about editing every time I talk to an editor about it. Every time an editor edits my work, I learn more about what an editor does. You know, um, <laughs> and, and it's kind of it's kind of progressed from this this you know this time in my life where I thought editors were just the people who you know make sure your your spelling is correct. Up to this time where I'm like, wow, they're like co-writing these stories with you almost. You know, um, <laughs> so. To kind of to kind of bring it home from somebody who has edited profession professionally for twenty is is it about twenty years? Yeah, yeah, over that. Yeah, o- over over twenty years. Um, 
what what would you how would you define editing like in, in what in what like what kinds of editing are there and and how would you define those okay so there's at least two aspects to it one aspect is that you have to keep the trains running on time and you have to make sure that quality is maintained mm-hmm. right so there's maintaining the schedule making sure that all the creative participants are maintaining their schedules turning work in in a timely fashion and to a standard of quality right right um and that all of those things are in service of story mm-hmm. not in service of individual ego but in service of story right so that's one part of the job the other part of the job is being an ally to the creators so it's helping the writer be the best writer that they can be helping the penciler the inker the letterer the colorist um helping them to do their best work right um being a being a guide and that comes through input and guidance and conversation right and when you're dealing with a large company like working at DC Comics when I was working in the Batman office. So Batman and his world come with a set of rules and those rules can or cannot be encapsulated into a Bible. And the Bible will tell the rules of Batman, the character, his supporting characters and the world of Batman. So you have to make sure that those rules are maintained Mm -hmm. Now, within that are a lot of possibilities for story. And so another thing is to, when you're dealing with corporate characters, to help creators see that rules are not limitations. They're actually dramatic opportunities. Right. When you're dealing with creator-owned stories, like what I'm doing now, it's working with the creators to do the archaeology on their characters and on their stories and really do the deep dive so we can get the full potential of character arcs, of representations of characters, of story possibility. Mm, Absolutely. And so that's what it really comes down to. It's really being a guide, right? And really helping people their best selves now within that there are going to be debates of course (laughs) um sometimes the debates can get heated the goal is to minimize that um the goal is to be respectful of the other parties in the conversation right and sometimes over a span of years you develop friendships Mm -hmm. you know i've developed a number of friendships in this industry through people whom I've been an editor to and with. Right, right. So ultimately what the job is, is to be a creative guide and to be an administrative caretaker. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. That makes, that makes sense to me. Um, when you mentioned, uh, a few minutes ago or a few seconds ago, you mentioned kind of the, 
the, the debates back and forth. And I, I've seen I've seen the conversations where people who are on the outside looking in kind of get the idea, well, well, this book went this way, you know, whether it's a novel or a comic, or whatever, because the editors said that it had to had to be that way or the editors chose this this storyline. I get the sense. I mean, again, I'm not behind the I'm not behind the scenes on this, but I get the sense that it's more that um, the the writer was trying to go a direction and the editor uh more helps them along that path or to find the clarity along that path would that be accurate or is it is it a little different in an ideal situation yes what you're talking about is the editors clarifying what character positioning is what world positioning is and then working with the writer so that the writer can tell the story that they want to tell and that it operates within the rules of that character, that world. Mm-hmm. And usually, you know, those are conversations, right? Those right. are conversations that happen. And one of the best experiences I had as an editor was when I was at Valiant and I was working with writer Vita Ayala on Livewire. Mm. And... Vita uncovered some things about Livewire that were informative to me and I don't think had been established in the history of the character. Right, right. That was an excellent run, too. Yeah, thank you. But what happens is these, um, these accidental things, these things that you don't know that they're going to happen, but whether it's an editor or a writer or an artist that a spark occurs and it makes you see things in an entirely different way. And so those, you know, opportunities for discussion allow everyone to get to the better stories too. But yes, sometimes there is a little tension that comes up between the creative urge to say, break a toy or to bend a toy around Mm -hmm. and the corporate need to maintain the condition of the toy and say, okay, this is a toy. You can still have fun with it without having to bend it. Okay. Absolutely. And And it's really, it's really tricky. I think it's also very challenging for writers when you are dealing with characters that are decades old, mm-hmm. how do you find a new spin on that character? Um, I really look at the work that Al Ewing is doing on the immortal Hulk. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I look at the work that Warren Ellis did some years back on moon Knight. Mm-hmm. Um, I look at what Christopher priest, um, recently completed on death stroke. Mm-hmm. We look at what Gail Simone did with birds of prey. Mm-hmm. And you see, we look at what Amy Chu did with Poison Ivy, and you basically see writers that exploit the entire mythology, but find something new to say that puts a character in an entirely different light or puts an entire history in an entirely different light. Right, right. Yeah, and I I, I love that. I love how these writers reinvent these characters. And honestly, that's what keeps me thinking of new ideas all the time when i whenever i pick up a new book of a you know 75 year old character or something like that 
and it's new. You know, I'm, right, it, all, right. it always takes me. I'm like, wow, this is like, you know, this person figured out a way to, to, to make this interesting again, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. And again, part of that is the editorial guidance, um, making sure that the theme remains present mm-hmm. in any storyline or any issue. I remember was having a discussion with Christopher Priest when we were working together on Catalyst Prime, and he talked about the importance of every issue of a comic book should have a theme. Yeah. And so that's one of the things that I really appreciate about Al Ewing's work on Immortal Hulk is that it is quite clear, <laughs> not hitting you over the head with a hammer, mm-hmm. but in terms of the construction of story, every issue has a theme, and those issues combine to make a macro theme. So when all the parties are working together in concert towards the same goal, which is telling the best story possible, these are the amazing things that you get. Absolutely. Earlier you mentioned a term, one of my favorite terms uh, since I discovered it. I don't even know when I discovered it. But um, you mentioned the story Bible. Um, yes. I don't know how often I try to, I try to tell you know, other, other writers, uh, peers and whatnot, uh, about how important it is to keep a story Bible, even if it's just, you know, you're just for you, like, you know, to refer to, um, can you explain how you would define what a story Bible is? Um, in, in, you know, for, for any, you know, I, I, for any medium, I guess, uh, I, I'd say, um, you know, even though we're talking about working primarily in comics here, um, I, I feel like stories universal, you know? Um, so in general, how would, how do you think you would define a uh, story Bible? Okay. So to my knowledge, the story Bible originated in television, right? Right. Yeah. Or at least that was the first medium and industry that I knew of to have a story Bible. My first exposure to a story Bible was working at milestone. So they had a document. It's over a hundred pages. It's called the Dakota universe Bible. And it basically had the Milestone universe broken down by title, hardware, icon, static, blood syndicate, shadow cabinet, zombie, and so forth. And so what the story Bible is, is it explains the world in which the characters operate. It tells you about the characters. It tells you how the character dynamics work between characters how the dynamics between the characters and the world works. Mm -hmm. And it tells you the do's and the don'ts. Right. Right. So think of any television show you may like. I can almost guarantee you there is a story Bible. Watchmen, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Mm -hmm. the expanse, queen sugar, insecure game of thrones, There has to be some kind of a comprehensive document um, with a lot of writings and developmental art. And you give that to people so that if they're coming into this world, they know the rules of that world. So if you're talking about what a Batman story Bible entailed, it entailed designs of Gotham City. It had character designs it explained 
the dynamics of the ecosystem of Gotham. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are certain things that you intuit, right? So, for example, if you know Batman, then you have to understand that guns are anathema to Batman. Right. Because a gun destroyed his life mm-hmm. and set him path, right? It fired bullets that ripped through his parents' bodies. You should also understand that Batman considers life sacred. His father was a doctor and his mother was a social worker. Now, these are things that were not written in the Batman Bible when I was there. But if you work on Batman, you should innately understand that. Right. Right. So there are a number of things that story Bible will tell you. And then there are certain things that you will intuit. And so the document is the guide for any new creator that you invite into the world of that intellectual property. Right. Now, if you have your, now, if you're working on, um, you know, your own creator project, um, you're working from right. the ground up, would you recommend, uh, people keeping kind of a, a document? Maybe not as a hundred pages, but, <laughs> you know, uh, some kind of a document to, to, to keep them, um, on par with their, with their world rules that they're building? Absolutely. 100%. And if the document has to be 100 pages, so be it. Huh. It oh. has to, as long as it needs to be, to flesh things out Mm -hmm. and listen we're human we may be tempted to do something sometimes but let that book be your guide right right and to me what's ideal about that is that you treat your ideas with the same standard that corporations treat their ideas absolutely so i was talking to a writer before our call about a pitch and I wasn't working with him in an official capacity as his editor, but I was giving him some feedback. Mm-hmm. And so what I did in that situation is I didn't say this is how it should be with this character. I asked questions and I said, OK, it'll be up to you to answer those questions. Right. And the answers to those questions will help determine what the rules of the character are. Right. Mm-hmm. So a character that lost their parents through an act of terrorism is not the same as a character who lost their mother through cancer. Right. Is not the same as a person who lost their parents through friendly fire Mm -hmm. in military act. You know, it's like every time you change the conditions, you affect the character. Right. So I remember one of the jewels of wisdom that I got from Dwayne McDuffie when I was working at Milestone because it was amazing. Like every day was a learning experience at Milestone. You just had to soak it up like a sponge. <laughs> and he had a group of us in one of the rooms and he said, if you put Batman, Daredevil and the Punisher in the same situation and any two of them Try to solve the problem the same way. You're not writing character. You're writing plot. Ah, ah, I like that. Because Bruce Wayne, Matt Murdock, and Frank Castle are fundamentally three different characters. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, And so they're not going to solve the problem the same way. Right, right. I mean, that's that's, that's something interesting to think about, you know? Um, Yeah, you can extend that to any character whether it's comics, whether you want to take characters across television shows, mm-hmm. right? It, 
it holds the same. Right. And I, I, I actually think that's a pretty good uh, practice exercise, I think. If you, you know, if you were to play around with scenes in your own writing and you, whether it's your own character or established characters, if you say, okay, if this person had to face this problem, what would they do? If this per, I mean, shoot, you can even take two that are relatively similar. Um, if, if you were to say, how would, how would, uh, Wolverine, Logan handle this problem versus Wolverine, Laura Kinney handle this problem? That's right. You know, that's right. What, what, what would you get? You're going to get. You're going to get two different approaches, right? Because you're talking about characters with fundamentally different perspectives on life and death, right? Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think I think that's an excellent way to think about it. I, I'm honestly, um, that might be something I need to note down uh, for my own thing. And I, and I think if you're writing, especially if you're writing your own, you know, your own characters that you thought of, I think that'll help you to better. Uh, fully form your characters, you know, to better round them out, to, to figure out who they truly are. And if they are doing the same things, figure out why. Why are these characters doing the same things? And and, and why am I writing this way when they should be different? Right. Um, I think if you create a character and that character is fleshed out, then that character is going to guide you sometimes. Mm-hmm. You may want to go left and that is going to go right. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? I know that feeling. <laughs> so, and that, and that has to be you're fleshing the character out. You know, as simple as saying, you know, that character, like this person's definition of revenge or this person's need for gratification or this person's capacity to be vulnerable. Right. Like those things are not your capacity to be vulnerable. It's the character's capacity to be vulnerable. Right. Absolutely. You know, and that's a thing that you don't fall into the trap of writing yourself through your characters. Your characters are separate entities. Right. So uh, another thing I was thinking about is, um, you know, sometimes uh, it's good to have an editor in general or, you know, a second pair of eyes especially somebody who's trained to be that second pair of eyes looking over your work is a, could be a huge asset and more than just, I think, you know, making sure that you're hitting your theme and whatnot. Uh, I sometimes think about the way things in your story are represented, are represented. I think sometimes your editor may be able to help steer you along that path too. And what I, and what I mean is, uh, if a character or if a writer is writing a, a, a situation that, uh, the, I guess through their story, they're not properly, they're not really in sync with that situation. You know what I mean? They're not really, uh, they don't have the, the optics that are appropriate to the situation, whether that be culture, mm-hmm. whether that be, you know, what happens in a, in, in a police situation, you know, a hostage situation, mm-hmm. you know, or, or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, as an editor, th- is that something that you, did you tend to help? help out the writer with? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a big question and it's very much case by case. Um, I would say that the editor would ask the writer questions mm-hmm. and through the writer's answers is able to determine how much the writer explored this. Um, when writing outside your experience, it is your responsibility to do research and sometimes that research is meeting and talking with people. It's not simply Google. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's big on the cultural on the cultural part. It's huge, huge. 
Right, right. You know, talk talk to people, <clears throat> excuse me, from the cultures and backgrounds, <clears throat> excuse me, and lifestyles that you are representing in the comics. It's important. And the editors should be your ally in that. And if you're not doing that, then they should challenge you to do that. Um, you know, we're at a default. <clears throat> the comic book industry has been historically culturally monolithic. And there are certain people within that culturally monolithic ecosystem that believe that because something has been done already, it doesn't need to be done again. Right. So I had a situation where about a month and a half ago, I did a Twitter post about a black Batman mm -hmm. and why this is the time to explore what a black Batman means. And I had a creator, an artist who was not a person of color cite to me some years back when Stan Lee did some kind of event, like what if Stan Lee created mm -hmm. the DC universe right, right. and Stan Lee made black Batman, right? Basic. And the creator said to me, it's been done before. Mm. So I have to think to myself, so wait a minute. So you believe that because a white man wrote a black Batman 15 years ago, <laughs> that, that is the final statement on a black Batman. And in this time of blatant racism, blatant xenophobia, blatant genocidal activities, um, in part informed by a militaristic um, law enforcement structure, you believe that there is nothing more to be said on the idea of a black <laughs> Batman. You, you see what I'm saying? Right, right. And I didn't fight that person on Twitter about that mm -hmm. because we don't need any more incendiary interactions on an already semi-toxic environment. Right. But this really speaks to the fact that a number of people believe that we have already answered the questions right. that fiction provides. And it is our responsibility to continue asking the questions. Mm -hmm. And we do that through story. And we do that through responsibility. And we do that by making sure that everybody gets a chance. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. Um, by making sure that the people whom are being reflected in the fiction get opportunities to be participants in the fiction. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think I, I guess, and I, I, I guess I was trying to be mild about the question, <laughs> but I guess what I'm really trying to get at is, 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 is the importance of having, uh, you know, whether, whether, whether the writer is a person of color or not, or whether he lived a certain experience or not, why it's also important to have editors that are from different backgrounds, different experiences, 
you know, uh, because I think they can help inform those kinds of things. I guess that's why I kind of went in a roundabout way of saying it, but that's, I think that's the meat of what I was trying to get to. And you already, you, yeah. you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> and listen, the, the, the variety of voices that are needed are needed on the creative levels and also on the business levels. Mm-hmm. You know, we need, we need a variety of, of voices at the executive levels. Absolutely. Yep. A, a variety of voices at the creative levels. Um, because creators need ambassadors, creators need advocates mm-hmm. and executive bodies need different perspectives to help them make material that will speak to more people with more truth. Right. Absolutely. Right. So that's what it's about. It's, it's about, um, a worldview, mm-hmm. a worldview cannot possibly be seen through the prism of only one community. Right. And so that's why we need more voices in more areas. And that is where editors help in one case. Um, but, you know, it really all comes down to the individual being able to acknowledge what they do not know and being willing to go out there and sincerely try to find the answers and to bring those answers to their work. Right, right. And, th- and those are the books that I think are end up being written the best, um, even if it is a... Uh, you know, a white person writing a person of color or something like that. You can tell the difference between somebody who went out and did the due diligence and somebody who didn't, you know. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, um, yeah, you can, you can see who is more responsible. Right. Um, and that's the thing. Like, it's not that people can only write within their experience and can't write characters outside of their experience can't draw characters outside of their experience. That's not the case. It's the case of the application of responsibility mm-hmm. and time. And as you said, due diligence to have your representations be meaningful. Right. Absolutely. Um, all right. We're getting, we're getting pretty close to wrap up time here. Uh, before we go, I've got to ask a little bit about uh, catalyst prime. <clears throat> I know that was a, that was a big project. A few years back, yeah, um, I, yeah. I absolutely loved it. I was, I was getting everything. Um, I was thinking to myself, like, wow, these, I'm, I'm going to be able to, like, you know, give these to uh, my kids, you know, as they grow up and have comics to read, wow. and they'll be able to see like diverse. Honor, I'm sure all, everyone who worked on that would be honored if I mean that, that was, one generation. The, 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 the number, those the number one thought in my mind, yeah, the number one thought in my mind was was um my kids i mean honestly like it was like yeah i'm enjoying this i'm loving this but the fact that i can they can grow up reading this and it just be the norm you know like that was my (laughs) you know that's that's how i was looking at that um but it's being that that's such a a a huge universe i kind of want to get a little bit of insight from an editorial uh perspective because i know that you had a hand in 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 forming this universe um, without you being right. like, you weren't like a primary, like kind of like to, to, to give some context, um, uh, Jonathan Hickman recently re 
uh, what's the word? Re- reset the status quo of the X-Men. <laughs> uh, and, but he is also writing the, he's not really like an editor by title, you know, but he's kind of like helming this ship, right? And he's already writing the main X-Men book and wrote the intro stories, House of X and Powers or whatever. Um, right. but, but Catalyst Prime was done differently where you're kind of helming the ship, but you give the reins off to, to these different writers. How, how was that process uh, from editorial perspective? Okay. So what happened was the owners of the company, David Stewart, the second and Carl Reed, um, had a basic idea for catalyst prime and hired me to bring together the people and turn that into a substantive universe. Right. And so there was a document of, I would say, a single digit number of pages. <laughs> um, I would, call it, I would call it embryonic. And what happened was that was the nucleus. Right. Right. And so the first thing I did was I found the writers. Mm-hmm. And so once I picked the writers, then what we did was we had a creative retreat. So we went to a hotel for two days. Nice. And we spent the mornings and afternoons fleshing out this universe. Basically starting from the event that would lead to the emergence of superhuman beings on Earth. And then branching out into the seven titles. So we basically discussed how this world came to be. How was the world transformed as a result of this? What does it look like in the aftermath? Mm -hmm. And how do these characters branch off in this new world? Right. Right. So that was the discussion that happened. And then... I had individual discussions with each writer as we were developing the outlines for their first year of titles. Mm -hmm. So we were developing outlines for like the first nine issues and then themes that would extend further out. Right. So that was seven monthly titles. And so in a way it was, it was, truly a writer's room that I ran with the different writers. Then once we had the titles and the concepts figured out, then it was time to bring on the artists. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have to pick the right artist for the right title, depending upon what you're trying to achieve, what a vision is. And then once you have the artist, then you bring on the letterers, you bring on the colorists and every choice you make is a choice that enhances the book, is a choice that speaks to the theme of the book and the goals of the book. Right. No creative choice arbitrarily. Right. Letterers are not interchangeable. Colorists are not interchangeable. Wow. Um, That's important. You know, and it's crucial. And when, for example, we were discussing Noble, mm-hmm. and Noble was a book about a black family that circumstances broke apart and it was about that family coming back together and it was about black love. Mm-hmm. I, Brandon Thomas was the only choice. Right. Yeah. He was the only choice because 
I've read his work. I had worked with him before, and I knew that he was an amazing storyteller who would dig deep. Mm -hmm. And Brandon had been denied the opportunity to write the Superman book that I knew he could. Mm. And so I said, write your Superman comic. Right. Nice. Very nice. And he did. And we got, and, and we ended up getting a comic book that was about black love in a superhero world. Right. And there aren't a lot of them. Oh man. I can't even like, honestly, <laughs> uh, yeah, there's not a lot of them. Cannot think of one. You can't <laughs> automatically think that's the problem. Right. That's part of the problem. Exactly. That's part of the the, the, the closest. Black to love it. is not. A, it's not a unicorn. Black love as a concept is not a unicorn. Right. Why is it a unicorn in comics? Or more specifically, in corporate American superhero comics. Mm -hmm. Right. 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 So. So that's a basic um, encapsulation of the origin of Catalyst Prime from an, from an editorial perspective. Mm -hmm. And by the time the meetings were all done, we had a Bible that was 75 pages long. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and that came from Milestone. Milestone was the company that taught me the importance of a story Bible. Wow. Wow. And, that, and that's kind and of what Catalyst I've... I got the milestone right. vibes, you know, <laughs> like that's what it was. It was a spiritual successor to the milestone universe. And for me in my career, it was the repayment of a debt that I felt I had to the founders of milestone and that I felt that I had to comics because when milestone disappeared from monthly publication, no other company filled that hole. Mm -hmm. People, all they had was a superhero universe that was no longer around that they wanted to come back, but they didn't have something to say, here is something now. Right, right. And so Catalyst Prime was for them. Absolutely. And it was for everyone who likes good stories. So that was very much a thematic closing of a circle in my career. And um, everyone that was involved believed in the cause right right everyone that was involved in a day-to-day -day basis believed in the cause so again you know thank you for the good words and if those if your kids find value in those comic books then that's a beautiful thing indeed oh yeah absolutely absolutely i mean the, the biggest to me for me personally the ones that resonated most were uh were noble and superb uh those yeah. those were definitely yeah. <laughs> those were the two yep. It's so crazy. Like, I guess they say, like, I don't have kids. I'm married. They say you're not supposed to have a favorite child. <laughs> I won't say I have a favorite child, but, but like, the superb kids are like, they're, they're the little baby. I miss my babies. Right. I miss Jonah and Kayla. And whenever yeah. I talk with the creators, like Anthony Height, the founding artist of Superb, and I will get on Twitter. Be like, hey Ray, look at our babies. They're still going, right, you know. Right. <laughs> and so you feel that kind of you feel that kind of relationship with them, and it's good to see babies go off in the world and continue to grow um, after you helped feed them and clothe them for like the first year of their lives. Right. Absolutely. I mean, that, it's 
Yeah. It's, I mean, that's honestly, I just couldn't stop. The, I know I mentioned it like several times already, but I, I just, that's why I couldn't stop thinking about it. I was like, wow, kids are going to read these. It's going to, it's, it's going to be like, it's going to be their status quo for comics, right? I mean, yeah, sure. They'll see Spider-Man and all that stuff too, but they'll also see this, you know? So I think that's cool. I sincerely hope so. I sincerely hope that, and I'm sure everyone that was involved with it hopes that those characters continue on for decades the same way that the Milestone universe, which, you know, came into being in the 90s, mm-hmm. um, still resonates for us today. Right, right. I mean, it was that it was that impactful, you know. Milestone was just so... It, nothing like it had been done. And then even you telling me just now about how you guys came together and, and did the retreat, that's due diligence. I mean, especially in the age of the internet, that's that's due diligence because the age of the internet, you know, people a lot of the time. I'm not I'm not saying I know how everything happens behind behind the scenes, but it could very well be. Uh, let's all meet on Skype and let's all you know or whatever. You know what I mean? Just the fact that you guys were like, okay, let's go meet up at this hotel and let's let's yeah. get this Bible out. First things first. Yeah, know? let's let's be with each other in real life, and you know what? Afterwards, we would have dinner together and we would just laugh, right? And we would just enjoy each. <laughs> It's like, yeah, because we're people and we're bonding. And when people are in each other's orbit and they bond, Mm -hmm. friendships develop. And then when you're all working together, it's not just a job. It's a mission. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. That makes a difference. Absolutely. I love it. I love it. Well, I think we're I think we're out of time. Uh, We'll go ahead and wrap this up. If you can, can you right. can you please let people know where they can find you on the social medias? Sure, sure. So on Facebook, I am Joe Illage. That's I L L I D G E. On Twitter, I'm Joseph P Illage. On Instagram, I am Illmaster One. And on LinkedIn, I am Joseph Philip Village. Nice, nice. I didn't, I didn't have Instagram. I like the Instagram name. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I, I wanted to mix it up a little bit. It's IGs. <laughs> I that's a, but, that's um, a good one. I love it. I love, yeah, I love using social media for its best intentions and not its worst intentions. Right, right. That's why I always, I always love seeing your stuff on, on posted online. Um, thank. You. Thank you. Um, as usual, everyone, you can find me online at Fourth Wall. Um, also at fourthwall.net, or you can search uh, Beyond the Fourth Wall. Beyond the Fourth Wall is a Patreon podcast. Most of the episodes are free, but there are a few bonus episodes that you can get if you become a patron. Um, so I appreciate your support, and we will catch you guys next time. Peace out. All right, all right. Bye, everyone.